Good morning and welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Susie. Hello. And moving right into things, we have feedback from Cherie. Uh, did I see this? No, this because it was it was delivered to me personally. Oh, well, la-di-da, aren't you special? <laughs> personally over a Hangout. No, Cherie just complained that it appeared as if we didn't do any research before we came across stories to talk about. <laughs> Surely not. Fake news. <laughs> no, she was commenting on the, uh, the the talk we did about Gardasil and the HPV virus, and apparently we didn't talk enough about the effects of the HPV, HPV virus and what it can cause genital warts and other stuff, which I can't remember now because I haven't researched it. Well, why, hang on, but this is like, did I? Maybe I just assumed everybody knew that they cause well genital warts and all forms of cancers. cancers. Okay, <laughs> well perhaps everybody didn't know. It would have been worthwhile pointed out apparently. Yes. Anyway. Apologies. We apologise, Cherie. These guys apologise. I'm not apologising. I don't think I was in that conversation <laughs> much. Right. Okay. Um, so that comes under corrections as well then, I suppose. Notice board section of our agenda is suspiciously blank. Is it? Okay. On with the uh, conference organisation there. Nearly done? <laughs> no. Um, not yet. Uh, how many speakers have we got? There are, there are people who are keen to help, so that is uh -huh. good. Good. The big debate at the moment is the timing of the conference. Right. And the issue is that we want to hold it around about the same time as the Australians. Um, oh. But bugger them, they are having theirs mid-October this year, which is very early, and um, which means that were we to go a week after them, we would be sort of around about the... 20th of October, which people have pointed out is sort of right in the middle of university exam season. And so we might be limiting our audience by doing right. that because uh, mm. at least a portion of our members will be in the university situation. And, and so we might be limited that. And also the fact is that we wouldn't then probably be able to have use of a, a university accommodation here in Auckland. Uh, right. Limit things a bit. So we may well decide to ditch the Australians and just um, yeah, does it, have it, have it need to be time. at the same time as the Australians or not? Well, it doesn't. But the advantage of having it near the Australian conference is that we can then take advantage of any um, speakers that any international speakers that might be willing to come and visit New Zealand on their way back home. Do we know who's um, who they're lining up? Um, not really. We've got. We've got a few people mentioned, but um, no, I ne need to make a, um, contact with them to, to find that out. Um, my feeling at the moment, though, is I think we should go it alone and, um, and keep the timing uh, sort of in December the way it was last year and the year before. I think that's yeah. more convenient. I mean, we switched to December. Well, it used to be, it used to be that we would have it in somewhere around about July, August. Yeah, um, that was quite some time ago. Um, anyway, there will be a conference be, at some yes, point, yes, and as soon as the organisers know what the hell's going on, <laughs> everyone else yes. will be informed. Right, quite okay. So then, moving straight into news, 
Alex Jones and Mike Adams have or have they not been banned from YouTube? Well, it does seem that way. Yeah, so what's happening at the moment is the Health Ranger account, which is the official YouTube account for the Quakery website Natural News, um, has been terminated. Received a strike on February 28th for a video that promoted a Sandy Hook truther claiming that no one died during that school shooting. Um, the account was moved on March the 3rd. Um, Natural News, which is one of the largest and most influential websites that promote quackery and whatnot, publishes fake news articles, fear-mongering about medications, GMOs, vaccines, fluorides, etc., 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 pseudoscience, etc., uh, and they sell a whole bunch of supplements and products and whatnot. Mike Adams is the man behind Natural News. Um, he, for example, denies that HIV causes AIDS. He rejects climate science and the germ theory. Um, he has other writers that promote fear about flu vaccines. Um, promote the and this is some news to me. Promotes the supposed medical benefits of staring directly into the sun. <laughs> Um, and a how-to guide for making your own homeopathic treatment for Ebola. Oh, my goodness. Pause for Susie to respond. <laughs> uh, even challenging dentists to support adding arsenic to drinking water, which seems a bit ludicrous because considering it's it's people like Mike Adams that are highly, highly against. Um, what's the shit you put in water? Fluoride. Fluoride, thank you. Yes. Well, hang on, are you talking about fluoride um, yeah. or... Fluoride is what fluoride. I'm talking about. But he wants okay. to put arsenic in? I don't know. Um, not the first time that they've been in trouble with Google. In late February of 2017, they got removed from the Google search results, which was initially, it was no one was sure why. He went into a full-on tantrum claiming there was an organized conspiratorial campaign against Trump supporters and a level of censorship... <laughs> akin to burning books or being a victim of the Gestapo, because of course he did. Bloopity, bloopity, blue, the, the globalists enslaving populations, war on humanity. The real reason that they got removed from Google search results, um, turns out that they were using sneaky mobile redirects that were in direct violation of the Google webmaster rules. <laughs> so now, of course, Alex Jones is claiming that he's, uh, his YouTube account is about to be deleted and as well as all of his 10,000 videos or whatever and he also has some wacky ideas which most people have probably heard of the government is flooding waterways with chemicals that turn frogs gay uh, mass survivor mass shooting survivors are crisis actors um, blah 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 announced that YouTube was planning on deleting his channel which has 2.3 million subscribers and thousands of videos. But according to YouTube, that's yet another fiction that Jones has cooked up. He has um, been on thin ice with YouTube and reportedly was one strike away from a total ban after using the channel to spread crisis actor theories um, about Parkland. <sighs> yeah, right. Um, well, so, he deserves yeah, to be banned, sort of, but... He but, certainly does, and no one would be sad except him and his fans, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, there's tons of other crap on YouTube as well. Sure, yeah. <laughs> He's, obviously, they're singling 
him and uh, Alex Jones out, or Mike Adams and Alex Jones out, because they're popular, I suppose. And they're the sort of target that lots of people will put complaints in about. Right. Um, according to YouTube, this just isn't just isn't what is happening. Well, that's an odd sentence. This isn't what's happening. It's not how the process works. There's a three-strike policy and an appeals process, and they didn't tell him that. Instead, there are no plans to delete his account, but the company did recently inform him about the advertisers fleeing his channel. Yeah, so Joan, Alex Jones is not Mike Adams. It looks like he has been. Um, the other thing, of course, is that once they've been kicked off, part of that process is that they can't just come back on and start a new channel, apparently. He's most likely worried about his loss of revenue, I would think. Oh, absolutely, sure. Um, he does still, of course, ha- Alex Jones also has his own dodgy products and and whatnot. Um, there's actually a very good John Oliver video, if you can find it, where he talks about Alex, jo- Alex Jones and the things he sells. And I think he does his own thing where he tries to sell a, a quacky miracle cure for like a million dollars each or something, which is actually up on a legit store, which you can actually go in and buy. Right. I don't think anyone did. Good riddance. Uh, speaking of good riddance, yeah. hmm. um, I'm assuming Susie wants oh, to talk about this one. I don't one. know. Am I going to get into lots of trouble? Are people going to start flooding us with emails? Um, Probably not. We don't have that. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So BuzzFeed um, put out an article recently, basically um, talking about some of the things that people have long whispered about Lawrence Krauss, um, lots of allegations of all sorts of bad behavior, basically. Um, and he started to be disinvited from a variety of events. Not, though, his upcoming um, Science in the Soul or something, um, series of talks he's giving in New Zealand and Australia with Think Inc., who have remained very quiet. Um, AUT, who is sponsoring one of the, uh, the Auckland show, have pulled out, um, as has, I think, the other... Uh, New Zealand promoter, but it's not clear what, whether, well, at the moment it looks like they're going ahead. I believe the tickets are still for sale, um, still happening in May. Um, he was supposed to be talking at, he was supposed to be one of the keynotes at a science communication conference being held in Dunedin around the same time, but he mysteriously uh, uh, d- disappeared from their lineup, um, uh, apparently due to. Uh, clashes with his um with his schedule or something just a couple of days before the buzzfeed article appeared anyway interesting um yeah if you have tickets and you're interested in going i don't know think about it maybe (laughs) do you really want to be supporting somebody like him there's been some really allegedly like him yes uh there've been some um, interesting stories from women who, you know, whose careers have um, had have taken a different direction to the ones they wanted to take because of being warned against him or because of behaviour that they allege that he has uh, done. And this is an important point, I think, is there are a lot of stories. Mm, there are a lot. There's not just a couple of people with stories. This is it's a lot of people. Um, mm. A lot of anecdotal evidence and some photos too. They're back up oh, really? the stories. Yes, indeed. So um, it, I think that um, he seems to idolize um, Richard Feynman, who's, who was a well-known womanizer. And I actually have a, a book 
by Lawrence Krauss about Richard Feynman. Yes, ultimately. Oh no, not again. Yet another one. Uh, and what are we going to do about it? I guess maybe if we have time for a pub talk, we can solve the problem of <laughs> sexism, misogyny, and... Well, I don't think we can, because I think um, it's perhaps inherent in our community, really, that um, a lot of the people who inhabit it are socially awkward people who, Mm. uh, when presented with opportunities like this, take advantage. Don't know how to be decent human beings. It's very sad. Mm. It is sad. It is sad, and it's a shame, and I wish people would stop doing it. Well, and I guess what's really sad is all the people who are attacking all of the women who are coming forward. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, It was actually interesting because one of the things I was going to say in my notes is that I've seen more posts stating, oh, no, here come all the apologists than I have posts by apologists. But as you all know, we were due to record last week. And since then... There's been a lot of posts by the apologist. I'm actually, st- and I still am for the time being, a member of the Lawrence Krauss fan club. And there's there's been, as you can imagine, quite a lot of back and forth and and arguments and people saying, all right, that's it, I'm out. I'm not a fan of Lawrence Krauss anymore. And other people saying, don't let the door hit you in the butt, Felicia, on your way out and so forth. Um Right. And and people, so what I wanted to do, but I just don't think I'll get a reasonable response at this point. I wanted to ask, okay, the evidence that we have right now is not enough for you to provisionally say Lawrence Krauss is likely responsible for some of the things he's been accused of, and I I condemn that behavior. What exactly is the level of evidence that that you would require to make that, to cross that line. Um, but I never got around to posting it, and I don't think I would have um, <laughs> had a calm and rational discussion with them, to be fair. Uh, if anyone is still considering being a fan of Lawrence Krauss and you feel like you could answer that question, let us know. That would be fantastic. Before you unsubscribe and send us the hate mail, <laughs> maybe you could just drop that in at the top or the bottom and say, this is the evidence that would convince me. Okay, so moving along from that, Unpleasantness, Craig, soulmachines.com has magically appeared in the list that I didn't see before. Uh, Well, no, that wasn't the next thing on the agenda. The next thing on the agenda was that, um, well, remember last month I talked about the friend of mine on Facebook who posted about the um, HPV vaccine that you shouldn't give your teenage girls it because they can die from it and all that sort of thing. Well, he's now posted a thing today about cannabis oil as a cancer cure. Oh, of course he has. <laughs> and that, of course, um, it's being suppressed by a big farmer and it's a cure they don't, want you, they don't want you to know about and all of that. So I actually clicked on the link and... Um, I can see how people would be convinced because it takes you to a page where they then cite all of these studies in real journals that show some sort of effect of um, cannabis oil on cancer cells. Are they in real journals though? Well, they are actually, yeah. Yes, they are. Um, But anyway, so I went and did a search and found an article by David Gorski from science-based medicine about it and which sort of explained that um, most of these 
um, studies are in vitro studies and they don't therefore necessarily um, scale up to clinical clinical usage. Um, so yeah, the science-based medicine stuff was a, was a good explanation of it. Um, but yeah, I just thought I'd mention it again because it's um, yet another one of these conspiracy theories that my friend Jeff seems to be um, prone to believing. Oh, ooh, this has got an interesting title. Sorry, I've just done a PubMed search. So PubMed is the um, database of medical publications and things that is, that anybody can access and can do a search on, and then it will tell you all the things. When you say anyone can access, you you get access to the abstract or yeah, you get abstract access to the abstract, and if it is open access, then there'll be um, a link to the article as well. But so only if it's open. some of the articles. Yeah. Um, psychiatric complications of cannabis use cannabis oil use in cancer patients whose responsibility is it to manage mm. so there you go there's no abstract for that one though it just says that's a scary title <laughs> okay so the the source of this um meme if you like um is collectively conscious um, and so what it says, Cancer Cure, a 60-gram supply of cannabis oil is recommended for those suffering from serious disease such as cancer. Each tube is 10 grams. Pictured here is enough to treat one cancer patient and only $600 to $1,200 total. The healthcare industry would charge you that much for your first night in hospital. Cure your cancer or lose your home and pay for the chemotherapy. Yes, anyway, so um, crazy person posting again. He doesn't um, listen to the podcast, does he? No, I don't think so. Have you told him that we're talking so. about him on our podcast? <laughs> oh, when I when I run into him next, I'll let him know that he's a subject of much hilarity. So now we're going to talk about soul machines, which actually just had a quick look at it. Looks really interesting. So I went to a user group meeting um, of some technology that I used last week, and they had a speaker from this company called Soul Machines, uh, who are based in Auckland. And um, so what they're doing is they have sort of artificial neural networks that are simulating the emotional responses in the brain and then animating a human face and and basically making what they call a digital human um, that is going to be used for sort of like customer service applications and it's quite cool really. Um, mm. Go and have a look at the website. It's it, it is quite fascinating. They've got some videos on there of um, the this particular digital human that I saw in the presentation. And so in the presentation, uh, he basically had a um, a webcam pointed at his face, and he was then um, conversing with this digital human. And you were seeing all of her um, facial expressions, and and she was responding to him and and talking to him about stuff. And so. Mark has been, um, he joined the University of Auckland uh, a few years ago now. So he's a, um, he was with Weta, I guess. He's a, he's a kind of, he's the man who did, I'm pretty sure did all the, um, the Navi and stuff for uh, Avatar. He's amazing. <laughs> and his, um, so the genesis of this project was um, his his project called Baby. Baby X was based on his daughter. Uh, and so it was like exactly this thing where um, he, it was sort of mapping all the neural pathways and then sort of how this baby develops. And so you'd, you'd be looking um, 
you know, yes, the camera is kind of the baby's eyes. It would be looking at him. And if he moved away, you saw all the stress hormones, you know, appear and then baby would get quite distressed and then he'd come back and she'd sort of calm down again. It was kind of, yeah, it's amazing. He's, he, I think he's done at least one or two TEDx talks about it. Mm. You should go and search him up. It's very interesting. But it's interesting that it's going in this way now. Yeah. So, so I asked, I asked a question about where he thought they were on the Uncanny Valley curve. Are you familiar with the Uncanny yeah. Valley? Yeah. Just for people who aren't, Craig, do you want to tell us what the Uncanny Valley is? So the Uncanny Valley is basically an observation that the closer a technology gets to appearing human, there's this point at which it becomes really creepy because it's not quite human, um, but then there's this sort of chasm that you can cross. If you make it human enough, then people will accept it. And so there is this sort of level of technology that you have to get to before people will actually accept having a, a relationship or a um, an interaction with with these digital humans. Um, and I was going to comment because the pictures they've got here look very, very convincing. Well, okay, so those seen... are actually a real model. Oh, really? That's why then? That's not an actual um, digital represent. Well, it's a digital representation of an actual human being. It's not constructed. Yes, gotcha. Um, so that's okay. actually one of the people that works for the company. Um so the, yeah, there were some fascinating ideas about the future. Um, wh one of the interesting things that I was skeptical of was that uh, apparently people think, or one one person thinks that you can predict the future by looking at what the one percent, um, the top one percent of people do with their lives. And so the examples given were that like uh, the richest 1% of people might have a uh, personal chauffeur. And so that's likely to be in the future and that we're all going to have these personal chauffeurs to drive us around. And and again, so 1% uh, of people might have a uh, personal banker uh, to do all their banking for them. And so that's the future. We're all going to have these personal bankers and they're, and they're going to be provided by these digital humans rather than actual real humans. Um, but I'm not sure. Maybe one, that one percent actually have these things because the ninety-nine percent can't. And if the ninety-nine percent could have these things, then they might not actually be so desirable. One thing he was talking about was that in the future we may all be able to have a digital version of ourselves that we might well send out into the world to have interactions with other people and then report back to us. But it's kind of like... Sounds like a Black Mirror episode. So if my digital version of me went out into the world and and made these decisions for me, am I actually authorizing what it, what it was saying? If it signed a contract for me, is that actually me? Well, what if, what if that digital version had an exact copy of all your neurons? Yeah, well, that seems a bit... It would fun. effectively be you. <laughs> and therefore, it could make decisions for you. <laughs> And murder you and take over your life. and So anyway, it was cool. quite fascinating. Yeah, sounds like uh, But I'd certainly recommend checking out the website. It's, um, yeah. So they have actually got some commercial implementations of these. Apparently, um, a company called Autodesk, uh, which our friend Robin Kappel will be intimately familiar with, they have a support person who is a digital human um, to answer uh, sort of first-level technical support questions. And is it a woman by any chance? It is a woman, is is a woman yes. Yeah. Her name is Ava, yeah. and uh, she is uh, ethnically ambiguous, apparently. Yeah, why should it not be a woman? Well, it's just really 
interesting that it, it generally is a woman because they're kind of seen as less threatening yeah, and right. more helpful. And that just says everything you need to know about humans. Yeah, right. And why we have a gender pay gap and why we have women doing most of the caring and all that kind of stuff. They're, and they do, they're there to do provide service. Yeah, provide service. One yeah. thing I did here, I can't remember where now, but it was if you want to give someone information, it's generally a woman's voice. Whereas if yeah. you want someone to leave the building now, it'll be a man's voice. If you ever notice yeah. the um, fire alarms, fire, evacuate it's the now. the voice of authority. Is, is going to be a dude. Yeah, it's everything mm. to do with, with just with everything. misogyny, basically. Sad. Yeah. We now have an interview with uh, Anthony Magnabosco, and he's going to tell us all about what he does, but he has a YouTube channel where he does... Uh, street epistemology, which we talked about briefly last week, and I'm going to ask him some questions and find out more about it. Anthony Magnabosco, welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. Thank you so much, Nathan. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Well, really? Can you say that already? I guess so. I mean, I heard you guys talking about street epistemology a few weeks ago, maybe now, and I checked out a few of your podcasts, and I thought, hey, these guys are these guys are fun. These guys are cool. So yeah, it is a pleasure to be here. Well, that's nice of you to say. Thank you. So I guess the first question is, what is street epistemology? And why epistemology? Is that the best word? Oh, I hate that word. Okay. <laughs> so street epistemology was a term coined by a philosopher named Peter Boghossian. He wrote a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists, where he recognized that if, if we want to have friendly conversations that effectively help a person reflect on their belief, that presenting them with facts and evidence to show how mistaken they are can be detrimental, can be actually fruitless. And he came up with this term street epistemology, which is sort of a mix of going out and engaging with people. And you don't have to be an expert in philosophy to do so. So the epistemology part of that refers to the study of knowledge. Street epistemology is this layman's attempt at engaging with a person to help them reflect on a deeply held belief uh, in a very friendly way using Socratic questions. So the term can be a little off-putting. I hate the word street in there also because uh, it, it gives the impression that you have to go out on the street and initiate talks, which is what I do but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do that. And then the epistemology part of that can be intimidating to people. They think, oh my gosh, I need to be a philosophy major. I need to be studied in academic epistemology in order to have these chats. And there's nothing further from the truth. So what would you call it if you were giving it a name right now? Ooh, that's a good question. There actually has been some discussion. Do we need to rename this thing? Because so many people get constantly tripped up on the academic sounding nature of this thing. Man, that's a good question. I, I, I might, I might drop the word street and I might drop the word epistemology. If I had to just off the top of my head, I might say something like friendly foundational investigations or something like that, which doesn't really roll off the tongue, but I think more, more accurately describes what we're doing. Friendly foundational. What was it? Investigations. Friendly foundational investigations, because the chats that we have are typically friendly. We're interested in the foundation, the, the very root method that a person used to conclude that their belief is true. And it is an investigation. Um, we're working together with the person to see 
what methods did you use to conclude that this thing is true and is it reliable? So while that doesn't necessarily flow off the tongue, and I hope that does not catch on, let me just put that. I won't, won't tell anyone. <laughs> there you go. Fundamentally, street epistemology or uh, friendly foundational investigations is about asking people why they believe the th- a, a particular strongly held belief that they have. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. I think you got about a third of it right. Okay, so we're, we're interested in what the person believes or the claim. Yeah. Like the what belief do they hold that's true, that they think is true. So what is a part of it? You mentioned the why, which are the reasons. Yes, I, I've, I'm very interested in the reasons that have led you to believe that this is true. But there's also this this third component, and I think it's the most important part when it comes to doing street epistemology, is the how, the method. We want to know all about the method that a person used to conclude with a high degree of confidence that their belief is true. So we tend to ask a lot. Yes, we want to ask questions to understand what the belief is. Yes, we want to ask questions to understand why or the reasons. But we definitely... In fact, I think what makes these conversations street epistemology is the focus on the how. How did you conclude that this is true? What method did you use? Is this a reliable method? And we tend to spend a lot of time mucking around at the how level, this deeper methodology level, before bouncing back up to re-examine what the person believes. Right. So it's more of a it's it's almost a fine distinction, but we're why is more about reasons, how is more about the process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so many times, whether you're an atheist arguing with a God believer, or you're having a chat with somebody who thinks karma is real, or that they've seen a ghost or some political stance, spending too much time on what the person believes and why typically doesn't help a person reflect on whether the belief is true or not. But if you start asking questions to investigate the method, that's where that's where something special happens. That's where people tend to slow down and think about their belief and the methodology they used and ask themselves, is this belief really true? Did I use a reliable methodology to get there? Do you find that people have a hard time understanding that distinction? Mm-hmm. I personally had a hard time. Yeah. I mean, for... For, for months, I would go out and I would be focused on what the person believed, why. And yes, I realized, oh, I need to go to the I need to go to the how. But when somebody says you can't be moral unless you believe in a God, that's raw meat for an atheist. It's so hard to set that aside. Or if somebody says the earth is 6,000 years old because they carbon dated a snail and carbon dating is wildly unre- unreliable. Hmm. It's hard to set those aside and and focus on the epistemology that a person used, the method. So it's difficult. It really is difficult. But once you realize, if my goal is to help a person reflect on the validity of the belief that they're holding, focusing on what the person believes or providing them with counter evidence to show that they're wrong is mistaken, especially on a one-on-one conversation. You have to go deep. Yeah, so that's the basis of the process that we're that you're doing with street epistemology is not counter arguments, not um, or not an argument at all. It's literally just ask a question, then ask another question, then ask another question. Correct, but not to the point where you're overwhelming your interlocutor, your conversation partner. Um, you don't want to 
the, the, the goal here isn't to c- confuse a person. Mm-hmm. The goal here is the goal here is clarity. I want to truly understand what you believe, and perhaps even in that process of you helping me understand, you yourself get a better understanding of what you believe, why, and how. So yes, um, street epistemology is, is very largely about asking questions. Rarely does a person using street epistemology, I think if you're using it properly, uh, and this is my opinion, when you start telling a person something, then I think you're slipping out of the SE mode. So, okay, this is a bit of a, I don't know if I want to jump into maybe you giving us some more detail about the actual process, but a question that's popped up uh, in my head, and I've seen it on your YouTube videos from time to time, is, is this an honest process? I'll explain what I mean by that. People ask you, why are you here? Why are you doing this? What's your ultimate goal? What do you say? And well, maybe to start with that, you tell me why why are you doing this? I'm I'm your your interlocutor on the street. Mm-hmm. Why are you here, Anthony? Why are you asking me these questions? Absolutely. And before I even answer that, I want to encourage you to be as direct and blunt with me with your questions as possible. Yeah, I will. Um, that will make this interview more enjoyable and. I don't have anything to hide, so uh, please feel free that, feel free to ask me anything that you want. Okay, uh, my goal isn't to go out and create atheists. My goal is to give people critical thinking skills, tools, so that they can ask themselves these questions on their own, and not just about whether you think a god exists or you think karma is real. There could be every day, every day, almost every day, I get presented with somebody making a claim, and I start asking myself, is this something that I believe or not? What method would I use to figure out that it's not? So, yes, I am interested in going out and initiating talks with people, and I love it when they choose the God belief, but I'm not out there to create an army of atheists. I want people to, I honestly want people to learn street epistemology which is why I spend a lot of time doing interviews like this and giving talks and uploading my, my examples to YouTube. Um, I think this is a great way to figure out what's true and what's not. And I can't think of anything more important than trying to hone tools that help us figure out what's true or not. Um, somebody once asked me, if you could hit a button and make everybody atheist, would you do it? And I said, no. Because I don't think that would really solve anything. Hmm. Atheists themselves are walking around. I myself might even be walking. I probably am. I'm walking around with beliefs that are probably not true. I want to have a good set of tools to figure that out and discard those untrue beliefs. If you could hit a button and make everyone on the planet slightly more skeptical, would you do that? Wow. Ooh. So now we're kind of getting into free will and... Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. That would be tough. Um, I on that one, I might say yes, <laughs> because that that would really be my goal. Is I, I want people to be more skeptical, to question more, question authority with respect, and challenge the things that we were raised with, and and the beliefs that challenge the map of reality that we think is accurate in our heads. So yeah, I think if 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 we could help make people more skep- more skeptical, more rational then that is my goal. Um, that being said, there, this whole idea of like making a decision for other people is a little alarming to me. So sure. That's the problematic bit of the, yes, I would love to, let me just put it this way. I would love to see it. If 
our planet, the human beings on this planet were more skeptical. Yeah. So the ultimate goal of what you're doing isn't necessarily to disabuse even one of their of their deeply held beliefs, but to make them think about those beliefs and maybe reevaluate the certainty that they have of those beliefs. Yeah, that's that's also a part of it. The first part I think was what I said about the tools. I want people to be able to enjoy a conversation with me and say, I want to learn more about what you just did because that was the most interesting conversation I've had in 10 years. I've had people say that even after a 10 minute talk. Okay. So parting tools is a big part of, is a big, uh, is, is half of that, I suppose. The other, the flip side of that is yes, I want people to go back home and think about the talk that they had with me on a trail and say, uh, wow, I don't really have a good reason to think that Jesus is God. How did that belief get in there? Is there a better justification at my disposal or method at my disposal that I can use other than faith, for example? So, and here's the here's the other aspect of this, is that they go back on their own to deal with this. Yes, they have a way to contact me if they want to, and they can, but they might go see a priest or an imam at a mosque or pray to their God for some advice. They're they're sort of left on their own to figure out how to deal with it, as opposed to, I don't know, like a street preacher saying, uh, now that we've established that you're a sinner, here is this book that tells you how you need to live the rest of your life. We don't do that in street epistemology. We help a person reflect on their belief. Did they use a reliable method? And then they're essentially on their own uh, to go ahead and figure out if this is something they want to keep or lower their confidence in. And the other the other part of that, I suppose, is I think we have an obligation to be there for people too, which is why I give people a card so that they can contact me. If you're evangelizing anything, you're evangelizing the method, the street epistemology, and maybe people should learn this. And again, not just to go out on the street and do what you do, but to apply it to themselves and to conversations with their friends and family. I kind of like to think of it that way, that I am evangelizing for street epistemology. That's what I'm doing right now to your listeners. I want them to be intrigued by this. I want them to hear some examples, perhaps, and be blown away by the conversations, the quality of the conversations, the effectiveness of it in helping a person reflect on their belief, where they might want to go out and learn it and then possibly teach it to other people or give a talk on it um, and, gay, and use this method when they're having their own conversations. And even the people that I talk to on the street, I would love it if they would, if they would, um, show some interest in wanting to learn the method. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm evangelizing for is this method. So going back to something you were just saying earlier about people going away and thinking about why they, they, or how they justify their beliefs and coming up with other justifications and talking to their pastors and their imams and what have you. On one hand, you could argue that what you're doing is you're creating stronger apologists to the extent that people are motivated to find reasons for their belief. Do you find that that happens or in the sense, in the cases where people have gone back to you? I have had some people say, thank you for that conversation. You've now edified my position. I'm now even more resolute that what I'm believing in is true. Oh, okay. It's Yeah, it is a little interesting when people say that, but that is the goal. That honestly is the goal. If somebody says, that conversation has helped me reflect on my foundation. I, I recognize that it's reliable, and I'm even more sure in my belief now than ever before. That's fine. Um, again, the, the goal isn't to just destroy foundations. It's to test them. Right. 
Okay, so so if somebody is using a reliable foundation and they've concluded that their God is real, and that bolsters their confidence in their belief, then I don't necessarily see that as a success. Now, I, I would be a little bit interested in what foundation they 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 were testing and and how did they test that foundation. I think that would be worth a, a deeper conversation. But I have had people come back and say, I'm now even more confident in what I believe. That's interesting. And what sort of percentage do you think are people coming back more confident or the same or less? Oh man, I wish I had stats on it. I don't I don't track it. And not everybody that I talk to contacts me. Sure. Yeah. And not everybody that contacts me indicates that they even fluctuated one way or the other. Right. Sometimes people message me and say, Hey, I, I just want to let you know I really like that talk. It was cool to talk with somebody about this belief. And I never felt like you had any judgment or condemnation about my my view. And I never at one point thought that you were laughing at me or anything like that. And thank you very much. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because of some of the videos I've watched, I'm sort of sitting there thinking, it must be really, really hard to not, I'm not insinuating you're the sort of person that would laugh at someone for having a weird belief, but there's moments in the videos where I'm like, yeah, I'd have a really hard time not pointing out that ridiculous thing that they just said. Is that something naturally that you do or is it a practice or a bit of both? A bit of both, obviously. It's a little bit of both, I think. Um, practice, that's, I mean, I, I just naturally, I think, am fairly empathetic to people. Right. I don't know if that's because of my upbringing and being the oldest and helping raise, you know, my, my siblings to a certain extent. I don't really know. Um, I guess it, it kind of goes back to my goal. You know, my goal is to help a person reflect on the reliability of the method they used to conclude that their belief is true. So if I smirk or laugh at what they're saying or make them feel stupid, it's not going to help the conversation in any way. So some of that I think is probably just on the street practice where you recognize, oh my gosh, I made a joke and that was the worst joke. And now the person thinks that I was making fun of them and it just completely sabotaged the whole conversation. So you learn fairly, fairly quickly what works and what doesn't. But frankly, um, I try to remind myself that I could just as easily be in their shoes if I was raised that 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 same way, mm-hmm. if I was exposed to the things that they were exposed to. So you tend to gain a sense of humility the more you do this, that holy, holy shit, like I could just as easily be in their shoes saying what they're saying. I suppose to a certain extent, you just avoid making jokes altogether, really, or even commenting on the things that they've said. Again, it's one of those things where... Someone yeah. has a weird turn of phrase or, you know, right on, groovy. And I'm just like, <laughs> that's a really weird thing to say. Is that something you normally yeah. say to people? Sometimes, sometimes humor is great, but, you know, it, it, sometimes humor is great because it can it can be a lubricant for the conversation. Yeah. You know, it just it kind of makes things easier and, and friendly. It takes some of the pressure off. But... Yeah, it's, you have to be careful too because people could interpret it as you making fun of them. Yeah. Um, Again, I suppose that's one of those things that you learn as you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Hmm. Exactly. And if somebody makes a joke too, you don't want to just like laugh so hard that it's unnatural. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. People will pick up on People tend to pick up on, on insincerity. So my advice is if you are just naturally a funny person, leverage that. Yeah. If you're not, then maybe try to shy away from it. Hmm. But 
if you can if you can bring some humor into the conversation every once in a while, I think it's helpful. You've got some clips that you wanted to share with us, and I've got some clips as well. I think we'll do one of yours. So let's listen to a clip with you interviewing Denzel. It's important. Uh, your viewers listening won't catch it, but he's wearing a red shirt with white lettering, and it says, Porn Kills Love. It's just the, the uh, scientific evidence proves it's just like any kind of drug, you know, like oh. the first time you watch it. Do you value scientific evidence? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, if definitely. Denzel, if we can provide you, if I can provide you or somebody that follows us closely, yeah. If I discovered some scientific evidence that showed that everything that you've just described very eloquently, it doesn't work in that way. They've interviewed 10,000 porn stars and 100,000 men and women, and the overall result suggests that it's a positive. All right? People feel better about themselves. They're living longer. Marriages are actually prospering. Crime is going down, like across the board. Okay. And I don't even know if that could even be measured, but if it could, okay. if there was a, a reliable study that showed something completely different than what you're outlining just now, would you change your mind on it? Uh, no, I wouldn't, because at the end of the day, I do value, I do value like, you know, scientific evidence, historical evidence, and that, and that kind of stuff. But at the, end, at the heart of it, like I'm a Christian, so I live like by a set of principles. I love that example because I think it shows how we could have spent hours talking about the, the evidence that might show that pornography is not as harmful as he thought. And it might be harmful, I don't know. I'm not even taking a position on it. But the, the, the big takeaway of that conversation was that he would still believe that it was harmful, even if he saw evidence, sufficient evidence, that demonstrated that it wasn't, because he held a deeper belief. Hmm. Yeah. So his 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 uh, his ideology, his beliefs override even extremely convincing evidence for him. Yes, exactly. So when you when you encounter somebody that makes that admission that he just did. It makes absolutely no sense to spend a minute more talking about pornography. You need to shift gears to investigate. Okay, so let's talk about how you determine that your God is real. Can we have a conversation about that? Because if he were to discover that he doesn't have a reliable foundation for believing that Jesus is his savior, for example, other beliefs that he holds, like his position on pornography and probably hundreds of other beliefs, will have to be reexamined. And that's what I love about SE is that you can very easily navigate a person's map to figure out, is this something that I need to spend time on? What do you do at that point? Do you move on to another topic? Do you, did you end the conversation? I think that day, it, it, it was probably 98 degrees out Fahrenheit. So it was a very, very warm, hot day there in Texas. So we probably did end it. I don't remember exactly. I gave him a card. But if we were to meet again, I guarantee I would not be interested in talking about pornography with him. I would want to find out how he determined that his God mm. was real. So you, obviously you talk about God beliefs, and in this case, it was a, a religious-based objection to pornography. What other sort of topics do you encounter? Oh, man, I've talked to people who think that souls exist. I've met atheists who think that, they're, that they have a soul. I've talked to individuals about gun control, abortion, that they've seen a ghost, 
karma is a very popular topic. Most people here in Texas seem to pick the supernatural claims. When I have a conversation with somebody, I like to ask them to pick the belief that we can examine, and they almost always pick supernatural things. They they rarely tend to pick politics for some reason, and I'm a little disappointed because that's an area that I want to get into. But whatever they pick, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um, I try to focus a little bit on what they believe, a little bit on why, the reasons, but then that methodology. So the questions don't tend to change all that much. You know, that it's kind of independent of the topic. Uh, which is kind of neat about this is that once you learn this method, you can pretty much use it for anything. And you don't, you don't even have to be versed on the topic too. I don't need to be a biblical expert to talk to a Christian about how they determine that their belief is true. In fact, the less I know about the topic, the easier it is, I think, to form questions to challenge a person's methodology. That's interesting because I would have thought the almost the opposite of that. I think, again, because I'm maybe coming more from the point of view of I'm maybe trying to disabuse them of of their beliefs. And my questions would be, you know, is it sensible to believe that? Uh, is that a, um, if you believe this, then doesn't that imply that? Which I'm sure is a terrible question to ask people. Whereas, like you say, you're more about just finding out what they believe. Yeah, like if I was an expert in on the Bible, I think it would be really tempting for me to want to focus on the what. Mm they believe the Bible because it says so in this verse. Well, if I was an atheist who understood the Bible really well, I might be so tempted to start throwing verses that contradict what the person believes. But if the person would still believe in a book, if it had convert, uh, if a person would still believe in a holy book because it had contradictions, you are wasting your time debating contradictions in the Bible. You need to find out what is so compelling about this book that makes you think that it's true? Yeah, that's a good They might good say, yeah. right? Yeah. Why would you want to spend any time? So the, the more ignorant you are on a topic, the better it is for these types of conversations because you don't, you don't tend to spend a lot of time on the what or the why. You, 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 there's more of a natural inclination, I think, to, to drive to the foundation. Fantastic. Um, okay, so I may be a bit late in the interview to start doing this now, but do you want to give us a few more details maybe about what questions you ask and when and how how do you construct the interview? I suppose a lot of it is okay. sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah. Off the top of your head, going with the flow, but in, this, in as much as you have a, a process, what's the process? There is somewhat of a process and it varies from person to person. So the other thing is my process has, has evolved over time. When I first started going out, I would approach somebody and say, I want to talk to, with you about your God belief. I didn't even do any rapport building or explain what I'm doing. So my process has become quite refined. And what's really interesting is that people will watch the videos that I've uploaded. They go out for the first time and they tend to lean you know, some, somewhat heavily on, on the examples that they've seen on YouTube and they go out and they nail it. Like they, they are going out on day one and having wonderful talks, largely because I think of the video examples that they've seen. So that's really encouraging. Um, that being said, this really isn't a scripted thing either. You need to go where the person goes. Okay, so with all those caveats out of the way, my process is basically, um, oh gosh, and I have to do another caveat, I'm sorry. But what you're seeing and what we're talking about are street examples of street epistemology. 
these conversations using SE almost always take place face to face. There's no cameras involved. They just happen organically. Uh, they happen over social media. But for me, when I go out with my camera to to create examples for people, I will introduce myself. I'll explain to them that I'm doing something called street epistemology. I'll explain what that is. I'm attempting to have a short, friendly chat with a person to select a belief that they hold, identify the reasons why they think it's true, and really get into the, the foundation, the reliability of the method that a person used. I encourage the person to pick a belief. And then once we go through that, I, I tend to set a timer also for my conversations, five minutes, just to respect people's time. You don't have to do a timer. I like the timer idea, actually. It's, um, it seems very, um, it gives them confidence that you're not just there to monopolize half their day with, with pointless yeah. questions. Gives them an out too, you know? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, I think it sort of says, hey, I respect your time. You're not going to be here forever. And it might explain why so many people agree to talk to me. What's interesting though, is that when the timer beeps, I barely notice that it's beeping. Um, the interlocutor barely notices. And if they do, they're like, oh, that's fine. Let's just keep going. They're so engrossed in the conversation five minutes in that, I, I, gosh, it, it must be 5% of the time somebody, we hit the five minute mark and they're like, okay, that was our five, right? We're done. I mean, very rarely does that happen. So- Okay, so we build a little rapport. I explain what I'm doing. We select a belief and I start asking questions and I give people plenty of time to answer. We try to define terms. If they require a little bit of extra time to think of a response, I don't walk on that silence. I try to just keep my mouth shut and I try to hold a reflective pose myself to kind of model that behavior. We, we, uh, we really start unpacking and unpeeling the the reliability of the reasons, uh, the reliability of the method that they're using. And we tend to end it on really good terms. I give them a card so that they can contact me. And sometimes they do. You know, people will reach out to me again or I see them a week later and they come up to me and they're smiling and they're like, hey, can we talk again? So that's the typical arc of these conversations. They almost always end though with a person thinking about their belief in a way that they've never done before. And it's so cool to see it play out. Because you just mentioned it, what is the difference between street epistemology and normal epistemology? Oh, sorry, um, non-street, street epistemology, if you know what I mean. So the, what you're doing versus someone who's just talking to someone on social media or with a family member or whatever. Well, my situation's a little bit more artificial, right? Like I'm initiating a talk. These are strangers that don't know anything about me. I don't know anything about them. Uh, there's a camera usually involved. Um, so it's somewhat artificial. Whereas if you're having a conversation face-to-face -face with a family member, the dynamics are completely different. So advantageously, I think with a stranger, they don't know my position on the topic. Whereas with a family member, you may have had arguments with this person and they know exactly where you stand on the topic. And I think that can make mm -hmm. it a little bit more difficult. I think I wrote a blog post on how to use street epistemology with loved ones, where I get into some of the recommendations on how to have an effective conversation with a loved one, as opposed to a perhaps somewhat easier talk with a stranger who knows nothing about you. Do you find that people who are doing this on social media versus on the street, do they use 
mostly the same sorts of questions or is there a different quote unquote script when they're not doing what you do? I do think the conversations are pretty similar, whether you're doing it with a stranger on the street or you're having a face to face with a family member, or you're doing it over social media via text. The biggest, there's two main things that I think make the, um, the non face to face or text based street epistemology more difficult. And that is the potential for other people to jump in. So like if you're doing this over Facebook on your wall and there's 50 other people watching it, you're going to have people jump in and throw you, throw you off and ask you, how come, how come you're just not giving him the facts to show that he's wrong? Uh, that's, that's a big factor there. Uh, the, the other one is the other part of that is the, is the body language. It's so helpful to be standing in front of a person or maybe video chatting if you can, and you can see them maybe touch their neck or take a step back or cross their arms. I understand that that's not a perfect science, but it usually does give you some indication about their level of comfort with your questions. And you just can't get that with a text-based conversation. Okay, I'm going to come back to this because I'm sure someone's picked up on this and they're screaming at their, at their headset right now. Why aren't you asking about this? You said that you've interviewed atheists who believe in a soul. How does that work? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, well, that was one of my biggest discoveries is thinking, uh, one of my biggest discoveries was coming to the realization that atheists don't always use reliable epistemologies either for their beliefs. So when you encounter an atheist who says that she has a soul, well, you first need to understand well, what does she Either mean by that ones, word? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it, it's really no different. I just, I don't spend any time talking about God, but I start to understand what do you mean by the word soul? Why do you think that you have a soul? How did you determine that you have a soul? So the core questions don't change, even though you might be a little bit perplexed on a person's stance. Like, hey, this person's from my tribe and holds this this very wild position on something. That has no, you can't make that an issue. You have to focus on the person. So speaking of souls, the other clip you've given me is yeah. Sam talking about weighing the soul. How do you know that you actually have a soul? I, I don't. Um... Well, I don't personally know for sure if I have a soul or not, but um, through my beliefs in Eastern philosophy, um, the soul is kind of, it's kind of labeled as an energy source, but with consciousness. Okay. And, um, and, the, and this soul is supposed to weigh seven pounds, this thing that gives us consciousness, that governs our decisions. And that has been proven by a scientist who had a sick friend who was on their deathbed and he asked to have their bed on a scale before they died. I think this was in Germany. This person died and the scale went up seven pounds immediately. Hmm. Yeah, so that was one study that kind of intrigued me on like the gravitational force of actually having a soul, like what that what that might entail. Can we talk about a little bit about that, that, that soul? Uh, that's really interesting. Do you think eight-pound babies have seven-pound souls? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, perhaps. Yeah, that's a really good question. Oh, wow. Um, nice. Hmm. 
That's fantastic. I love that talk with her. And, and I was charitable with her. Yes, even though I asked her a potentially embarrassing question, I asked her, you know, do can I asked her, can an eight pound baby have a seven pound soul? I didn't say, could a five pound baby right. have a seven pound soul? Yeah. I gave her a little bit of wiggle room there. But the important, the important takeaway with that one is that the important takeaway with that conversation was being charitable with her and giving her time to think it through. So after I asked my question, I was quiet and I let her think it through. And she said, hmm, that's a good question. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> that's the type of reflection you want to aim for. This woman probably never really gave it much thought. She's heard the study. She misconstrued it probably. Perhaps there's some explanation. Maybe it's a percentage of a person's body weight that's the soul or whatever. But the key thing here is that she didn't really take the time to think it through. And that's what I love about street epistemology is that it encourages that type of reflection. Yeah, I mean, that was just absolutely brilliant. I was, I was not going to ask that question. My question would have been something more along the lines of, did anyone do a follow-up study or... I just I'm stuck in this in this <laughs> right. hardcore skepticism yes. militant atheist mindset that has to challenge everything. And I think that's well, you're a rational person who thinks, oh, I just need to give this person evidence to show them that the yeah. study was debunked 50 years ago. That will certainly change her mind. No, more than likely, showing somebody evidence that demonstrates that uh, a key piece of evidence that they thought was true is not tends to fall to the backfire effect, which may or may not be a phenomenon. It seems to be kind of in dispute now. But it seems that when you give a person, if you point them to a report that shows that this is bunk, they're going to ignore your evidence or they won't allow it to affect their belief whatsoever. But if you can ask a person a question to elicit that type of reflection that you saw there, that you heard there, then that is probably the best way to impart a pebble in a person's shoe so that they think about it. You said you'd give us 40, 45 minutes, and we're coming up to that point now. So I would like, if you can think of anything, I want to maybe play some of those Carlos clips. Um, but just really quickly, um, silly question. Mm -hmm. You always have a packet of Tic Tacs on your board. You call you guys call them Tic Tacs, right? We do, but I've started. I've sort of started off by calling them candies because I my videos are watched all over the world, and I just I don't want to assume that everybody knows what that that brand is. But yeah, and it's not something that I've always done. I think this is just maybe a phenomena that I started within the last. So year. are they there just for when you get a dry throat, or is there another purpose? Because I remember you saying something about a story with <laughs> with Tic Tacs and. Okay. All right, so the Tic Tac candies that I keep with me, and I have a little magnet that holds them to my to my whiteboard, my magnetic whiteboard. Lately, not lately, but I've been running into people who think that truth is subjective. That the person who's believing in Zeus is just as correct in their belief as the person who believes in Vishnu. And... I break out the Tic Tacs, I break out the candies to do a little thought experiment where I ask the person, okay, let's just take a little break. I, I want to do a quick little thought experiment to see if you think the total number of pieces in this container, and I usually shake it for effect at that point, if this box of candies is holding a total number of odd or even pieces. 
And usually most people will say, oh, it's got to be one or the other. It can't simultaneously be both. Okay, so once we've established that, then we can move back to whether or not the person thinks truth is really subjective. Most people agree that it's odd or even? Do you have some people who, who don't agree? This is a kind of an embarrassing omission, but if I were to guess at the total number, it's usually 50-50. 50% of the people say, oh no, it, it could be both. It could both be even and odd simultaneously. Now that might just be my location here in Texas and this this you know this particular area. It could be I was just sloppy in how I rolled it out. There are some people who will just say, oh, it's odd. They completely miss the question and think that I'm asking them to guess whether it's odd or even. So as we talked about, like I'm I'm constantly improving at this. I've been very careful in how I explain this, this thought experiment to people so that they're less likely to misunderstand it. But even for the people that understand it, there's a very sizable amount of people that will claim that it can be both it is it can be both odd and even simultaneously for the total number of pieces. And when you listen, when you hit, when you hit that, don't shift to their belief. You would be wasting your time. Uh, it makes no sense, I think, in my in my view, to to discuss a person's deeply held belief whether or not they have a soul if they think everybody can have their own truth. Do you think there's any value just from an interest point of view to find out what that person believes, or is it just a waste of your time at that point? Uh, I mean, it could be interesting to find out what their position is on whether a higher power exists or not. But for somebody focused on their methodology, if everybody can have their own truth and everybody's method is just as reliable as the other person's and they're coming to these different conclusions... There's a, there's a far more fundamental issue. There's a foundation under the foundation, basically, that needs to be explored. And that's, the, that's this idea of truth. Which is a good point. Once you've determined that they don't believe there's an objective truth, have you ever tried to ask them why they believe that there is no objective truth? Oh, yeah. I don't just end the conversation. No. I, this, this is, I kind of like in street epistemology more these days to triage. You want to try to find out where a person is at. It's like coming up on a, on a car accident on the side of the road or there's a car pulled off to the side of the road. Are they just having a picnic or are they in some sort of stress and need help? It's kind of when, when I have these conversations, I want to try to get a sense of where a person is at. And if you have to keep moving lower and lower and lower, then that's just where you go. Sometimes I've had conversations with people for 30 minutes about whether truth is objective or subjective, and we've never even broached the topic of what belief they hold. So- you know, like I said, this is largely about meeting a person where they're at and trying to f figure out if you can help them or maybe they can educate you. Fantastic. Now, something you just said made me remember a question that I was going to ask about one of the videos I saw. There was a woman who believed, I want to say believed in karma. And she was it was very upsetting to her that she believed in karma and she didn't want to believe in karma. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And I kept I do remember that. That was about a month ago. It was one of the reasons Delmi. Yeah. And I was I sort of waiting for the point at which she would jump in and say, Have you tried talking to someone about this? A professional mm. mental health professional. Have you ever mm. found yourself wanting to recommend something like that in that sort of situation? Yes, I have. And that's, that kind of goes back to the whole triage thing. Sometimes I run into people and it, it becomes evident to me. And I'm a, I'm a lay person. I'm not trained in psychology. 
I'm not trained in academic epistemology. I'm not trained in linguistics. But it sometimes becomes evident that this person might be beyond my capacity to help them. Mm. And I do think that we have somewhat of an obligation to you know, be there for them if they have questions after the fact. But I think you have to be delicate in how you make the suggestion that, hey, um, this really sounds like this is a belief that you're struggling with. And have you considered professional help? You can do that, but I think you have to be delicate in how you do it. Sure. Because I think people could be quite offended by that if you were to suggest that they're damaged or broken in some way. Right. Um, but yeah, that was, that was an interesting talk, the one that you mentioned, because I think that was the first time where somebody said to me, and I'm a total stranger to them, you know, 10 minutes into the talk, can you help me? This is a belief that I wish I didn't have. I'm tortured by this belief that I've, I'm being punished in my personal relationships for something that I did 10 minutes, 10 minutes, uh, for something that I did 10 years ago. Mm. Can you help me disabuse myself of this belief? I was a little bit taken aback to hear that. Um, so this is a clip of you interviewing Carlos at some sort of campus, and it was a couple of years ago, I think. So we'll play that clip. How strong are you on the belief if, let's say, 0% was I don't believe and 100% was I absolutely believe? Where would you put yourself on that, Carlos? Um, at a solid 75. I had 75% I believe. Okay. 25, the, the 25% is just, I don't know, inhibitions, things that are preventing me from fully embracing it. I appreciate but, your honesty. Yeah, yeah. I'm Seriously, because that's gonna... probably not easy to say, especially yeah, if you're not... a part of a, a group like that. Mm -hmm. Why did you level off at the 75% and not just continue drifting down? Um, I guess just internal, internal faith, like fire in the belly that I refuse to let go of. There are a couple, there's, there's the mental What do you balance. mean by that exactly? Um, I'm a very passionate person, I'd like to say. And so anything that I once I once liked or I once believed in, I'd hate to just abandon ship altogether. There's something inside me that refuses to ever just give up altogether. And so, mm. I, I mean, it slid down a little bit. I have my doubts, but I never let it reach the point where I was going to have like an absolute um, destruction of my faith. I still wanted to make sure that if it's what I once believed, then might as well stay true to myself and keep believing. And that's, that's basically how does, it. Does your rigor in just wanting to maintain the belief make the belief true? I'm not sure. I feel like I want to maintain it so bad that I make it true to myself that um, I, I'm a strong believer. So yeah, I guess trying to keep up with my faith, it does. You're making you're making the belief true. Hmm. I'm not sure how much of it is me and how much of it is I do just believe it. And it's it's a combination of the two, I'd say, of the fact that I really just do wholehearted. I mean, 75% heartedly yeah. believe believe um have a strong belief and then the other half i guess yeah is that i want to believe so bad that i do believe that hmm. it is so what does it say to the truth of the belief if it's just you know a large part of it is just wanting to believe in it it slights it a little bit yeah it it makes it seem less true and more of a more of a yearning on my part I, you do have a point there. The, the yearning for something to be true it doesn't necessarily make it completely true. It's more of a me wanting to believe it to be true. You're you're right, Carlos. But why are you ho why why is that a is that a? We just hit our timer. It's fine. We'll continue. Is is that a honest position to hold? No, it's not. It, it really is not. It's it's a position. Uh, almost a, a fake position, a facade. I, I'm almost as bad as the people that I say are putting on fronts. If I say I do believe in God and then at the end of the day it's only 75%.
what would what would have to happen in your life to get you to move from the 75% mark down to the 50% mark? Um, it wouldn't have to be anything spectacular. I think oh. it would just take a little more dedication on my part because I haven't really, with all the, the classes and stuff, I've been trying to balance out my time and I miss Bible study sometimes. I miss church and I could get more dedicated to... Uh, oh, no, no, no. I may be misunderstood. Oh. I want to know what it would take to get you to move further down on the scale. Oh, to move further down. Mm -hmm. What would have to happen in your life? Further down... Huh. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe the death of a family member. I know that always strikes up a crisis of conscience, crisis of faith. Let's um, say, you know, not not to like you know, get you know have any bad vibe here, but uh -huh. let's say as you're walking away, you get a phone call that a you know very close family member just passed away. Ooh. Would that cause you to move down on the scale? It probably would just a little bit. Really? I think humans, we all suffer from the woe is me. Like, why Why are you doing this to me? Why me? Yeah. We all suffer from that. And I think I, I would also be one of one of the people who would definitely blame God. Because I, I feel like it's not fair. That's what everybody does right away. They jump to conclusions and everything's his fault. It seems like you've almost set up a scenario where regardless of the outcome, you're going to view it as this God helping you or working in your life. Yeah. In what way does that make the belief in the God true? I'm not sure because it almost uh, diminishes like the free will aspect of life if you're putting so much so much faith in the in the hands of God but um, ultimately I'm not sure I guess that that's all I have to say is it really is uh, eliminating the free will aspect of my life so if I am if I am always saying that, well, it's God, it, leave everything up to God, whether the outcome is good or bad, it's in His hands. It kind of diminishes the role that I play in my own life. Does, does it diminish the likelihood that there's even a God in the life working? It does. It, it could, just a little bit. Yeah. I think it could. Thank you very much. No problem. Have a great day. You too. Take care. I want to understand how they concluded that their belief is correct. Mm -hmm. And... Typically what I find is that the method that people use to get to the God belief is not extremely reliable. Yeah. Right? I, I believe it because I was born in it, or I believe it because... I noticed uh, that when you were talking to me, I kind of realized all the errors of my way, or just, hmm. I don't know, like the little quirks in my faith and how it's all very unconventional and unorthodox yeah. when I really think about it. Yeah. Oh, really? It put things in perspective a lot. Like, yeah, my entire bus ride home, I was just thinking about, like, I had a crisis of faith. I was like, hmm, what do I believe in? Do I believe in myself more than anything? And I like to like to project a higher power just as a coping mechanism, or do I really believe in higher power? And I don't know. It was like, hmm. it's been in my brain ever since then. Yeah, the thing with the Carlos clip, it was a while ago. I wasn't very polished back then, a little rougher on the edges. It's a little noisy. When When I first had that conversation with Carlos, and posted it on my YouTube channel, I thought it was the best example of street epistemology that was out there. And now when I listen to it, I cringe because I feel like I was rushing through it. I was cutting him off. I tended to make some assumptions. What's interesting though, is that a lot of people will watch that video and still be blown away with it and think that it's great. But I look at it now and I cringe and I'm like, oh, I, I just, it just isn't the best example. But what is, what is neat about that clip, and I don't know if you intend on playing it or not, is that I end up meeting him the next day. Yeah. And we have a discussion about the discussion. If it makes you feel any better, I didn't particularly like that clip as an example of epistemology, more so his admission, if you like, that he was only, what was it, 75% sure or 75% confident in his belief in a God, which mm -hmm. I thought was, I mean, is that 
that is somewhat remarkable amongst the people you've you've interviewed? It's hard to say. He could have been. He he strikes he struck me as a very honest person. He was probably one of the most honest conversation partners I've ever had. And when you have somebody who's going to be honest with you, then you're in for a good conversation. So yeah, he reported that he wasn't entirely confident that his God was real. Upon watching that video a couple times, I don't know if you picked up on it or not. I'm not entirely sure he recognized that I was being, I was trying to be neutral, but I mean, I have biases and I am, I am an atheist. I think he, I could be mistaken, but if you watch that again, he very well may have thought that I was a proselytizer for Christianity. Yeah, I definitely got that at a couple of points. Where Did you? Yeah, you, yeah. you asked him what it would take for him to go from 87 to 50%. He was answering as though he thought you meant to go up in confidence. Right. And he was a little surprised. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm actually, what, what, it would take, yeah. what would it take for you to lower your confidence? And he was a little, like, a little taken aback by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the little things like that make me think that he was probably the, under the impression that I was, I was trying to, I was trying to edify his, his God belief as opposed to challenge it with questions. Mm. Well, that has been absolutely fantastic, Anthony. Um, before we go, I'll give you the usual uh, opportunity to plug all of your plugs. So how can people mm. find you? Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. This was fun. You asked great questions, and I, I love talking about street epistemology. And I encourage your listeners to look into it, please. I do think it's one of the best ways to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody on a topic that you might disagree with. My website is anthonymagnabosco.com. I understand that that's a mouthful. If you just go to my Twitter, which is Magnabosco, that's a great way to interact with me there. I'm also on Facebook. If you search for Anthony Magnabosco there, you'll find me. And I try to be very responsive too. I have a lot of people messaging me, contacting me, challenging me. And if this is something that you want to look into further, please reach out. Oh, and there's the streetepistemology.com website. How could I forget that? It, it's basically the website that you'd want to go to to find links to all of this information, communities, resources, apps, books, etc. And your YouTube channel, of course, which I'm sure there's, there's links to that all over the place. Yeah, my, my YouTube channel is MagnaBosco210, and that is my public Facebook page as well. Sure, and MagnaBosco is spelt pretty much exactly how it sounds like it's spelt. Yeah, just it's phonetic. It's M-A-G-N-A-B-O-S-C-O. Fantastic. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you for joining us on The Cusp. Thank you, Nathan. It was a real pleasure. And that was an interesting interview. What did you guys think of the interview you just listened to? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I, gave you guys well a link. Done, I gave you guys a link to it last week so you could listen to it <laughs> and comment and ask questions. We'll hear it when the podcast comes out, I'm sure. Yeah, you listen to the podcast, do you? Every week. Mm. Yeah. So that brings us to, very quickly probably, Woo Zealand. The new pharmacy council's code of ethics. So they have now released their updated code of ethics. And so this is relevant because um, the New Zealand Skeptic Society put in a submission hmm. um, to them around wording of uh, various parts of their code of ethics. Maybe and it seems... Maybe we should take a step back. The background to this was that... A few years back, if we're talking about the same thing, there was essentially kind of a an experiment or a sting done against pharmacies where 
skeptics went into pharmacies to see whether they would be sold homeopathy when asking about um, a particular illness they had. Um, and in what that was the, against their code of ethics at the yes. time, right? Yes. I'm not sure exactly whether these things are related, but um, at some point the um, Pharmacy Council, they had their 2011 code of ethics, uh, which basically as skeptics who pointed out that their code of ethics basically should prevent pharmacists from selling um, alternative medicines because they don't have any um, evidence mm. of efficacy. Um, and so the code of ethics was rewritten. Uh, at some point, we put in a submission um, because it appeared that they were trying to water that sort of clause down. And so now the wording... Uh, I've not had time to compare it to the original wording, but basically it says that a pharmacist ensures that when providing any medicine, complementary and alternative medicine or other healthcare product or service, that the health and well-being of the patient or consumer is the primary consideration and that the benefit of use outweighs the risk. So that actually doesn't say anything uh, about uh, efficacy. Uh, point eight, point H... Well, hang on. Which principle? I'm is in this? principle one. Point H. It says um, considers available evidence and only supplies a product when satisfied that it is appropriate. Uh, and that there's no appropriate. Yes, but it doesn't have to say have to that consider it works. the evidence. Yeah, and then just decide. I've considered the evidence and it's appropriate. <laughs> wow. Okay. I thought that was really good for yeah. a second, but no. Yeah, it's like each well, each of these clauses can't start off well, but then clause G says promotes the safe, judicious, and efficacious use of medicines and prevents the supply of unnecessary and or excessive quantities of medicines. But I'm guessing that they won't count them under medicines. No. Maybe no. no, homeopathy probably isn't a medicine, so therefore it doesn't have to be efficacious. Yeah, interesting. So anyway, Mark Honeychurch was the driver behind the interactions with the Pharmacy Council. So um, hopefully he'll be able to come back to us and let us know what he thinks of the new um, Code of Ethics. If he has enough to say, maybe we could get him on for an interview. Mm, indeed. There were lots of doctors who also put in submissions and stuff. So we should um, we should talk to some of them and see what they say. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So the next topic after that is Craig's official information request. What did you find out about dowsing and cartitin? Well, that well that was actually incidental. So um, <laughs> it's a huge long so, conversation. Well, it was it. actually. Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so let me let me tell my story. Um, so uh, a couple of months ago, I put in. I made first use of the FYI site. The FYI.org.nz is a means where anybody can put in a request, an Official Information Act request to a government department on anything they like. And so um, the government department has to reply within 20 days and tell you what you ask them unless there are some uh, specific reasons for not doing it, like commercial sensitivity and security and all that sort of stuff. This is fairly standard Official Information Act, but there's now a website to help you do it quickly and easily. Yeah, well, so, so you can basically select who you want to ask. It keeps track of the process. It sends in the request for you. Um, it keeps track of the response that comes back. Um, 
I think essentially they provide um, a, a an email address to the the organisation that is used to um, track all, all the responses, um, and so you can see what other people have asked and if there are similar requests and so on. So it's actually a very very good site. Um, the the requests that I put in um, after I read an astounding article on PZ Myers Feringula blog a few months back, uh, which was talking about the New York Police Department uh, union basically complaining that uh, the get out of jail free cards that uh, retired police staff were allowed to give out to friends and family, which would entitle them to preferential treatment by police in New York. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Um, They were complaining that uh, the number of cards they were allowed to give out to friends and family was being reduced from 30 down to 20. And the police union were up in arms around about that. And so basically what the idea is, is they had these cards you could give out to a friend. A friend. So if you got pulled over by a police officer for some misdemeanor or, or whatever, you could flash them this card and, they, and it would say that um, this person is a, um, a friend or family member of a, um, a New York police officer um, and therefore um, you should go easy on them, huh. which is pretty disgusting really. Um, so anyway, I thought, well, I wonder if there's anything like this in New Zealand. And um, I thought, okay, I'll put in an Official Information Act request to the police and say, is there anything like this? And um, we live, we appear to live in a corruption-free country. And yes, the response came back that no, there was no such um, uh, program in New Zealand, nor has there ever been. Um, so that, that is pleasing. So, um, yeah, so that was my first Official Information Act request and it got a good response and it got a timely response. So um, I, I, I kind of wonder whether the uh, the police actually were as astounded about it as, as I was <laughs> actually reading about it. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, browsing on the um, FYI site, um, I also noticed um, that somebody had put in um, a request to all the councils asking whether anybody in New Zealand uses dowsing to locate water or whatever. Um, because there was a scandal a few months back about uh, councils in the UK and making use of dowsers in order to find water underground. And apparently it was quite a common practice. So... Uh, the the great thing about the the FYI site is that you can send out this um, official information act request to a whole bunch of um, organisations all at the same time, and so this went out to all the councils in New Zealand, and they all had to respond about whether or not um, any of them used dowsing or hired contractors that used dowsing and so on, and apparently there is. So down in Carterton. Where is Carterton for our non-New Zealand? Carterton is a small town in the Wellington region. It's a bit north of, yeah, north of north of Wellington. Um, pretty rural, I think. What they have said is that uh, we have council staff that use number eight wire to lake locate water laterals. I myself learnt the technique about 30 years ago, but it is very much a hit and miss technique. <laughs> Um, and then it goes on to say, I have no records of any contractors employed by council in my time who have used the dowsing technique. I have been with the council yeah. for 13 years. 
there is not any company offering the service that we have engaged. Um, no records show that we have incurred costs for any of the above. But yes, yeah, so the guy who wrote the response uses a number eight wire um, for, for dowsing. <laughs> and well, he says he learned the technique, but whether he uses it or not. But apparently some people do. But it says they have no records that show they have incurred costs. But I would argue that if there are council staff that are out using their company time to, quote, use wire to douse for water, and they're being paid for that, yeah, and that's a cost. Indeed. And they followed up to check that when they said that they use number eight wire, did they mean use number eight wire in dowsing? And he just says, Well, yes. and further on, it says, Gary has confirmed that number eight wire is just used for dowsing, no other method. No other method. Yeah, they don't poke it in the ground or what the fuck? No, they don't use fancy dowsing rods. They just use number eight wire. Which in New Zealand just, um, is probably a, uh, is a typical usage of number eight wire. Well, literally everything <laughs> made out of number eight wire. Can be done yes. with number eight wire. It's a whole, there's a whole meme Indeed. about it, isn't there? Um, which if you want to know more about, you're going to have to Google because we're moving on to Delia's dubious device. Oh, how much? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So, so Delia is not actually um, going to talk about this, but it's me. No. No, what are you doing? <laughs> We're messing with you. <laughs> I, I fear change. Yes, okay. okay. I'm uncomfortable. So uh, I, a friend of mine um, who happens to actually be my next-door neighbor uh, has a company um, that sells computer products, and he also sells some hi-fi stuff. And um, in his um, shop at the moment – uh, for promotional purposes, presumably, because I don't think anybody in New Zealand is going to be able to afford these. But he has um, the Sennheiser, the name of it has actually just, just escaped me. Right, so um, Sennheiser have this headphone system that costs 90000 New Zealand dollars to buy. Um, and they are supposed to be the very best headphones in the world. Uh, which you would hope they would be for the um, $90,000. And made of solid gold? So what they have is they have a it, – it's not just a pair of headphones. It's a whole system. And so they have this marble slab that contains all the electronics. And so it's got um, – it's got vacuum tubes in it. In the headphones. No, no, no. no. In, so you, so it's a whole system. So the whole system has this marble slab, and you press this button on the front, and you press it gently, and then the controls slowly pop out. I see. And then uh, the next yeah. stage is all of these um, vacuum tubes then pop up out of the uh, marble slab, and then is the third stage. This um, this hinged uh, sort of cabinet opens up and reveals the headphones that you can then put on. Is it all just bullshit? By though? which time well, everybody else in the room has already on. put their headphones on. The headphones apparently sound amazing. Well, do they sound fifty thousand dollars worth uh, of amazing? Yeah, well, it's fifty thousand US, so yeah, ninety thousand. The the ninety thousand dollars isn't just for the headphones; it's for the marble slab and the fancy electronics and the mechanisms and all that as well. Yeah, yeah. I oh, see. So you think it's a bargain now, Nathan? Oh, yeah, I'm going to get some. <laughs> anyway, so this um, friend of mine actually has these at his store and um, he's invited me to go along and actually audition. So he's got a bit of a display where you can push the buttons. and. Can you do a, a blind 
listening atheist. Yeah. Well, I think that would be really difficult to why? to do. Blind, why? We could blindfold you. Right, but and then you play the same with headphones though. You could you could feel that you could potentially feel the difference between which headphones you had on. Yeah, but if you didn't know what headphones there were, if you didn't you know were, in advance, we had yeah. a whole heap of different headphones. Yeah, well, I think could it would be. Them? Could you rank them? Can we do this experiment, please? Yeah, can we? You know the guy, several right? Several people. Okay. Can you ask him? Well, I, I guess we could try this because it would be very cool. Well, can you really tell the difference between, you know, a ninety thousand dollar pair of? Well, it, I think it's interesting. I mean, the, the audio industry is rife with bullshit about um, products. There are people who pay thousands of dollars for inter interconnect cables between pieces of equipment that cannot possibly have any effect. <laughs> um, and, it, and it's well known that you can make something sound better, in air quotes, simply by playing it slightly louder, hmm. you know, le less than a decibel of, of uh, difference in volume actually makes sound something sound better. Um, so can you and control so, for that sort of thing? Well, well you can, you, if you, you could do some you very sophisticated A-B okay. testing, and mm -hmm. uh, which is what they typically do with um, equipment, then that you go and sort of you listen to a piece of music and then you you decide which one you like better and then, it, then the computer basically randomly swaps it to, or doesn't swap it to another piece of equipment and then you right. rate that and so on and then you can statistically figure out whether there is any actual difference between the, so the two pieces. So has done that with this system? Well, not with this system, but that is things that they've done on other pieces of equipment like right. cables or okay. amplifiers or perhaps even, even speakers. Um, so in general, things all sound different. They all have their own characteristic quality. Um, uh, but the interesting thing is that this particular piece of technology has vacuum tubes in it. So uh, vacuum tubes have a particular characteristic. Well, they distort the sound by um, by having particular um, sort of uh, nonlinear characteristics. Um, but they supposedly make the sounds better because um, they they produce even harmonics, which are um, nice to listen to versus uh, odd harmonics, which sound like a, a clash. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, the actual, the actual transducers that are, um, that are reproducing the sound are basically, I think um, 2.8 micron thick titanium, which apparently makes the sound um, very detailed. So I, I, I reckon that they, they probably do sound very good. But do they sound $90,000? Do they sound $90,000 worth of good? And no, obviously not. And it's clearly a status symbol and a, and yeah. a kind of a... Really uh, the, 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 interesting, the interesting thing is that they've got this huge marble slab and one of the reasons for this is that it is so weighty that it then dampens down any vibrations. Yeah. And and the, the reason they need to do that is because vacuum tubes are actually quite susceptible to a thing called microphony, where they actually pick up vibrations from um, uh, uh, sort of in the room that can actually taint the music because you've actually got physical electrodes inside the vacuum tube that can be rattled by vibrations, which then would have an effect on the on the audio that's being sent through them. Um, okay, so that just leaves us with the word of the day, which is galactometer. Something that measures the galaxy. Susie measures the well, galaxy? It measures something. Clearly, does it? Is it clear, is it? Maybe it's something that measures the expansion rate of galaxies. Hmm. 
be my pick expansion rate to be more specific to one up <laughs> Susie that's the trick of when you have to guess how many beans are in the jar and you pick one number greater than the person before you <laughs> expansion rates etc 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 we know what that means okay who wants okay. to know what it actually means <laughs> what does it actually mean it's an instrument for measuring the specific gravity of milk what? oh right. Right, Lacto. but surely, surely that is affected by the expansion rate of the galaxy. <laughs> no, it's for measuring the fat content of the milk. Uh, okay, we should get half a point for at least doing a not measure. knowing there's a meter, for that. <laughs> which of course is from the Greek Galaxius, uh, and and hence why we call galaxies galaxies because they're named after milk. Yep. Because the first, the first galaxy we discovered, the Milky Way, in Greek, mm. um, Galaxius Kyklos, literally Milky Circle. Jeez, you learn some interesting stuff. Don't you just? That's, that's just, that's been worth however long we've made people wait. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of Thanks waiting. Thanks staying with us. <laughs> <laughs> All three of you. Um, Craig, give us the quote and we'll sign off. Well, it's a nice short one this month. Good. The truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> Said by Gloria Steinem. Well done. Very nice. That's nice. Yeah. Which just sort of sums up the podcast today, really, doesn't it? <laughs> In so many ways. <laughs> and with that, that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question or give us any suggestions, check out our Facebook page or use the Contact Us form on our website, thecusp.org.nz. Yeah.